Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Chase Jarvis. Welcome to another episode of the show. Very excited to have you here listening in your ears. You know the show. This is the show where I sit down with the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders and do everything I can to unpack actionable insights with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. My guest on today's show is Mr. Jason Silva. I know a lot of you are going to be familiar with Jason. We travel in a similar circle. Um, If you're familiar with him, then you know he's uh, an incredibly unique guy. Um, If you're not, then I'm going to do my best. But you really got, I'm going to try and explain it, but you have to check out his work. Brilliant, insanely insightful creator. And his work sits at a really interesting intersection of personal development, like making yourself better, of philosophy and film. He's got a background in film and television. So... I like to think he and I are, are, are sort of similar in that we sit at the intersection of a handful of cool and historically different things that you might not you know, put these two things together, uh, two or three or five or eight things together. You also may know Jason as the host of Nat Geo's show Brain Games, one of the most successful shows that Nat Geo's ever created. And he's got a great uh, short film series called Shots of Awe, um, which is uh, on his YouTube channel. Also, most recently, as the host of the Nat Geo show Origins, which is in its debut season now. Very tough to put a label on his work. That's one of the things that I love about him. So I'm going to echo in his words. He calls these, these his background, all the things that he does, little shots of espresso. That's his shots of awe, all his, his the shows that he hosts. Little shots of philosophy espresso. And while that's a bit of a mouthful, it is, I think, a pretty good characterization of someone who's involved in so many cool and disparate things and manages to bring them together. To say that Jason has a lot a lot to say, rather, it would be an understatement. He is a, a sponge of information, and he's got this rare talent for absorbing information in real time and being able to, to articulate it, making it, make it his own, and then reshare these ideas with a cool new layer that you hadn't thought about. He's got all kinds of crazy sources. He synthesizes them into his own point of view. And he also he operates both in the very, very abstract terms and uh, like like philosophy, and you know my background is in philosophy, so uh, there's we have some overlap there. Philosophy, metaphysics, and also in in the very tactical, like he has all kinds of routines. He's very specific about how he likes you know X, Y, and Z, and I think that this balance of these two things, and you can hear it in his voice, I think is a it's a powerful combination, uh, including very simple things like how to get your career off the ground, how to, how to maximize your creative flow, how to get in the right headspace on a daily basis or when you're going into uh, an important meeting or uh, a place of creating. A couple highlights, we also talk about how Jason got his start on Al Gore's cable channel, Current TV. I don't know if you guys remember this, but... I was a huge fan, Not this had nothing to do with Al Gore, politics aside, this content style was the first UGC stuff that I really saw at meaningful scale on television, um, and was also, it was small and bite-sized, it was like 5, 7, 10, 12 minute shows that were coming together to make a, a, a bigger show, I thought this was really cool. You've also heard me talk about how we're all hyphens, what Jason calls, Jason calls that a slashy, if you're a... A photographer, an entrepreneur, a director, uh, author, blah, blah, blah. He calls it slashy, which I think was a really fun term. He himself is a host, a producer, a writer. Uh, you, you get where I'm going with this. Um, he explains also why that's the best way for him to work and how technology has makes this all possible 
And like me, we agree that this is future. And littered throughout the episode, but specifically later in the episode, we talk about a bunch of kind of heady stuff around, you know, esoteric things that you will love if you're a fan of Jason's YouTube stuff. Things like transhumanism, the use of psychedelics to explore creativity and personal health, um, metaphysics. I love geeking out on this stuff with him, and I, I could have gone on for hours, but we had to stop. And speaking of stopping, I'm going to stop introing this show and just let's get into it. Without further ado, we need to first hear from our sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Live classes that are on-air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Yes, thank you for that intro. How about it, right? You feel good? Just smooth, okay. man. We, this has been a long time coming. Months, I think I, like six or seven yeah, months. Yeah, man, awesome. Thank you for making time. We're happy to have you on the show. I am thrilled that this is finally happening. We in were such a cool, quiet space. It is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, there's an inside joke there. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to it, Yeah, maybe. we'll get to it later. Um, <laughs> uh, so take, I'm gonna take uh, us and the cameras here and you and I back. Yeah. Seven years ago, we first met at a dinner party in, That's right. in Washington, D.C., and uh, we've been in the same circle ever since then. I've watched your career um, just absolutely take off in the meantime as the yeah. host of those shows, uh, but I'm deeply inspired by Thanks, your man. deeply philosophical brain. Um, how did you get there? Go back. What was childhood like? Origin story. Yeah, give me the origin story. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah, man. I, I, grew I, up, I don't know it. So. I grew up in South America, actually, in Venezuela, which not everybody knows. No. Yeah. So, uh, hablo español perfectamente también, like fully bilingual, <laughs> and went to an international school in Venezuela, and from there went to college in the U.S., where I double majored in philosophy and film. And I know that you studied philosophy uh, yeah, as well, right? Yeah, yeah, studied philosophy formally and then informally film as here we are. Well, there you here. go, man. So we have that in common, a love of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And you know, most philosophy classes were not even that good. But occasionally you had a kooky professor who was like, you know, philosophy of art, philosophy of space and time, philosophy of the weird. And yeah. I always kind of enjoyed like deep dives into heady ideas. Yeah. 
And cinema was just an art form that I always loved, just as a passive consumer, as a watcher. I thought that nothing affected me the way cinema did. And so, so I wanted powerful. to find, exactly, I wanted to find some way of, 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 of in turn expressing myself cinematically the way that I had been, and to impact others the way that I had been affected. And so, again, the love of philosophy and film and, and a hippie mother who was an educator <laughs> who was like, study what you love, don't be practical, just do your thing. And so that was my double major in film school. And from there, I got a gig working for Al Gore's station. Most people don't know that, yeah. but Al Gore co-founded a cable channel in 2005 called Current TV. Yeah. I remember, can I philosophize yeah. on that? Yeah. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Um, I was A, super inspired, B, wildly curious, because I knew Gore was involved. And, and I think Gore might sort of, as a human, overshadow the yeah. concept. So if we take Al out of it for a second, I found that it was interesting that he was involved, but mm -hmm. more than that was the formatting, mm -hmm. the, um, the the unabashed focus on younger, yeah. millennial, yeah. Um, a completely different mindset from all other TV programming, and just to, it was short form, yeah. it was, there's a lot of UGC, That's right. Um, so what was it like to be a part of something oh, it was like amazing. that, so seminal for it was amazing. culture? I, I mean, imagine as, as a film student slash aspiring thinker, philosopher, guy, um, this network provided a, a real outlet that kind of embodied what I wanted to be. The backpack journalist, the storyteller with a digital camera that was gonna change the world. I mean, Current yeah. was called by the New York Times a, a network of young people who think and pioneered user-generated content. Yeah. We invited, Before YouTube. Right, we invited the audience to make the content and submit it pre-YouTube. Yeah. Now granted, it was a cable channel. It had a website backend for the submissions. Yep. They were more focused on the cable channel business model, which yeah. I think was short-sighted because yeah. again, we were pre-YouTube. Yeah. If they would have focused on the web, we would have been the user-generated revolution network, yeah. which we yeah. never quite yeah. got to be. But it was a nice place to get my feet wet. I got to move to LA. I, you know, I, the, the head of programming became my mentor and it wasn't like I had to move out there without a job and go through like auditions or castings or send a resume out. It was yeah. like, come work for Current, meet Al Gore, participate in the media revolution or in, 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 in maybe a false start at the beginning, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I, I love, and, I, and for the folks at home to take away from yeah. that is there was, no one gave you permission. There right. was no like, we're looking for this and you're like, oh, I have experience as a host. Yeah, none. You, yeah, you just yeah. did it. And I think there's some overlap with your background, yeah. but it was mostly like, this this kid can do this. Yeah. He's a you know articulate guy, and you on the other side of that, yeah. like if you're not the the network looking at you, you're looking at the network like, yeah. shit, like I'm gonna give it a go. Yeah. What well, was, I, th what was I it think like? that what was happening was that uh, the the circumstances of technology, storytelling technology, media technology, increasingly shrinking in size and mm -hmm. in price was lowering the bar of entry. Yeah. You know, as to an aspiring filmmaker. Uh, realize that there was a hybridization happening. Yeah. But behind the camera, in front of the camera, digital content, are you the writer, are you the host, are you the producer, are you also the editor? You could kind of do all of it yeah. a little bit. And because I've been playing with video cameras since I was a little kid, I eventually realized that I wanted to do stories that were relatively short and I wanted to kind of be the narrator, but I also kind of wanted to be the director. Yeah. And so all these things fit into my submission for Current. I made yeah. a film with my former host, yeah. my former co-host, um, that was about hedonism and spirituality. So it was still an aspiring philosophical doc yeah. about reconciling uh, the search for transcendence and the search for pleasure. And that's how I got the gig. So it was very much like, throw all caution to the wind, this is who I am. And you know, now we see a lot of vloggers and, and digital filmmakers doing their thing on YouTube, but I think yeah. at the time it was like, 
took a gamble and it and it worked out. That's know? exactly what I was inspired by. Yeah. Is the same thing. There's a the cultural like gravity that you feel right now when mm -hmm. you identify with someone, uh, internet personality. This mm -hmm. was sort of the beginning of internet personality, giving people the stage when it used to be controlled by big networks. So totally. this is, this is um, if I'm gonna put yourself, I'm gonna put some words in my mouth. So this is yeah. your vehicle. You go yeah. from you know, Venezuelan yeah. uh, film student philosopher right. to now a television host. Right. Um, and what do you, you look at that platform and say, Okay, what do I what do I do with this? Sure. And so, how did you use that as a lever, or yeah. you know, did you maximize that? Did yeah. you miss out on some things? Give us yeah. give us some. Well, context. what was amazing is they paid crap, but yeah. it was enough to move to LA and rent an apartment fresh out of film school at 23, 24 years old. Which that's a huge win. Right? Yeah, because <laughs> it was like, who gets to be in LA and actually be like, yeah, I'm working for Al Gore for this new network. Like, yeah. I, you know, you go to parties, you start meeting people. Everybody's like an aspiring actor, an aspiring screenwriter, which is awesome, all these yeah. artists, but they're like waiting tables on the side. And so it was like, it was, I think for me, nice that I, I actually had like a legitimate thing going yeah. Yeah. and it opened a lot of doors. I got to meet a lot of people. I got to kind of build that network. I you know, started meeting people, adding them on Facebook, finding friends in common. Yeah. I was just hungry. Yeah. And I didn't know where it was going, but I wanted to add value. You know, I had this intuition about this, you know, that now it's obvious, the personal brand, but sure. at the time it was like, I just, wanna, I just wanna build a resume in this space because I have an interesting story. The more I can publicize it, the more the story becomes real. Yeah. You know? uh, it's so true. That was the beginning yeah. of the personal brand. It, yeah. it was early. Uh, I'm For Instagram, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking I'm, I'm putting the timeline on my own life and that was like at blogger was really coming up pre YouTube yeah. it was Google video yeah I also was putting videos on the internet and cool. was shocked at how like wait a minute there's actually people on the other end of yeah. this that care you had this crazy advantage of, of actual television right. I think there was still uh, a focus on that being more validated than you yeah. know these other platforms that we're wildly aware of today yeah. but current didn't work out. So yeah, so what happened is again, because they were focused on TV, that was an existing business model. They had distribution agreements with cable and satellite providers. All the execs were making money. They didn't care about ratings at first. Eventually though, those distribution agreements would be up for renewal and then ratings would matter. Yeah. And current never broke through because it was an obscure cable yeah. channel yeah. instead of focusing on the internet. Yeah. So I was there for five years. It was great. I had job five, security. Yeah, five years? five years, man. Yeah. And it was around 2011. You know, and people got, people came and went, people got fired, but our mentor, the head of programming, he was there. And it's only when he left, 2010, 2011, mm -hmm. and we heard rumors the network might sell, sell itself to Al Jazeera eventually, yeah. that I knew it was time to get out. Now, what had been happening is that that already had become kind of autopilot for me. Go to the studio, do the show, chill. Yep. Think of like, you know, like MTV VJs, yeah. but instead of tossing the music videos, we were tossing the citizen journalism. Yeah. On the side, though, on weekends, this, this, my, my, the filmmaker in me was be, becoming agitated, and I was starting to experiment with a lot of web video, particularly yeah. like in Vimeo and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And you know, I was going out with a camera guy, and we would go out on these hikes in LA, and I'd be like, I just want, I want to talk about like disruptive innovation. I want to talk about singularity. I want to talk about anything I was yeah. geeking out on. You know, I was going to the TED conference at the time. I'd become a Ray Kurzweil fan. And I was like into transhumanism. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of like make my own videos on the topic. And that coincided with like Current's kind of ending. And so eventually I, I, I left Current. So here I was five years in, the guy that used to be on Current with no real savings because they didn't pay that well. So then it was like, what were my prospects? Like, yeah. I never went to an audition before. Yeah. You know, I, 
do I, how do I, what's next? And I took a, a kind of a, a year, I dove into a relationship and kind of traveled the world and, and, and kind of just assumed things would work out somehow. And what would happen is because I had more free time, I got to keep out of pocket starting to make these short videos. And the, the term I came up with was philosophical espresso shots. And I was like, you know, short form digital video, my love of philosophy, let's, you know, what is the philosophical take on transhumanism? What is the philosophical take on romantic love? What is the philosophical take on the human condition? Anything yeah. I was interested in from the, from my own hunger totally for knowledge and my videos. existential agitation. Yeah, remember them. I started doing them out of pocket, sitting with an editor, but I got to really express the, the filmmaker in me, like... I wanted to have this music and I wanted to have these visuals and I wanted to put the audience in an altered state when they watched it. And, and, and the videos slowly but surely started to resonate. And I leveraged whatever networks I had, Twitter, this and that, but still, it was yeah. early. Yeah. Um, but then a lot of things just, you know, this is when they say that the things just align. So I was on like my third or fourth video out of pocket, dipping into my savings, where several things happened at once. The Atlantic wrote an article about my videos. Uh, this guy, Ross Anderson, a science writer for The Atlantic, was a fan, he contacted me, and he wrote a profile piece where they called me the Timothy Leary of the viral video age, because a couple of the videos were oh, making man, some waves. Oh man, you can't pay for you that. You can't pay that's, for that, yeah. That's, that's, right, <laughs> and that's when I told him, I was like, I'm inspired by Timothy Leary's you know, countercultural ideas, but eventually he went from counterculture to cybernetic culture, yeah. and he said that, well, technology is the new LSD. Technology is the new psychedelic, because technology allows us to extend our minds beyond yeah. all limitations, and so, I told him how inspired I was by these ideas, and then he kind of just kind of called me that in the article. So that happened. And then a showrunner from National Geographic contacted me about this show, Brain Games. They were like extending this three-part special into a full series. They were looking for a host. And he's a guy I had met serendipitously through my ex-girlfriend at a screening. Sure. You know, yeah, that's, timing, yeah. right? And I was like, Everything. he's like, what are you doing right now? I was like, well, you know, I used to be a current last year, but I've been working on these videos. Sent him the videos, sent him the Atlantic article. And then like, oh my God, this is awesome. You'd be perfect. So again, timing meets opportunity. All yeah. that hustle to meet the right moment seized it. Yeah. And then I got hired to host Brain Games. And then Brain Games blew up. Emmy nomination for the show. Emmy nomination for me. Highest uh, new show launch ratings in history for Nat Geo at the time. All that was happening. And, you know, it's like... And that was a moment. But that's, it's the moment as yeah. you worked at Current for five years, mm -hmm. you hustled for a year, mm -hmm. you went out of pocket. Like that's the, that's the message that I want, if, like if you're watching or listening right now, yeah. internalize that just for a second. Like yeah. that is the, you know, the classics of those in this case, a seven year overnight success. Right, right, right. right? right you right. go from zero to hundred miles an hour. Precisely. Yeah, after working your ass off for oh, a yeah. long time. And the, you know, to me that the myth of, you know, you're just going to get your one break and, and then you're off to the races. I think this show aims to A, debunk that, B, inspire people because yeah. like, that's how it happens. It happens, you got to be in the game to win, yeah, totally. right? And if you're sitting on the sidelines or totally. you're not fully invested. Um, so let's, so fast forward to now, you've yeah. just completed the, the, sure. the, how many, five seasons of Brain Games or something like yeah, that. That yeah. was crazy. It was long. crazy. Yeah. I mean, Brain Games went on for five seasons and Nat Geo has footprints all over the world. So 171 countries were airing the show. And it was one of those shows that just it, uh, across the lines and across cultures, like yeah. it has a huge following in Mexico. It has a huge following in the Netherlands. It was a huge hit in Italy. Like yeah. it, it's not often that a show yeah. just transcends boundaries yeah. like that. And it's a show that people like to watch with their kids. So I get a lot of adults that are like, we watch it with our kids, right. you know? And again, Nat Geo is such a brand yeah, associated with exploration and science and neuroscience. And 
So the philosopher in me really got off on the neuroscience because it was like, well, here's the neuroscience of perception and skewed perception. And, you know, all these ideas like you don't see the world as it is, you see the world as you are. Philosophical wisdom, guess what? Neuroscience agrees with that, you know? And, And so the whole idea that reality is coupled to perception is something that's often spoken by psychedelic intellectuals, yeah. you know, the doors of perception. Well, it turns out neuroscience agrees with that perception. Yeah. So it, what Brain Games did is it took the philosophical intuition, the love of bumper sticker lingo, like yeah. we live inside of cultural reality tunnels and those cultural reality tunnels warp our worldview. Well, guess what? The neuroscience agrees. Yeah. So Brain Games gave this scientific authority to my own philosophical musings, yeah. which then informed my continuing digital video series because I did brain games for five seasons, but I continued to to work on the philosophical shorts. I eventually partnered with Discovery Digital Networks um, to do Shots of Awe as a formal YouTube channel. And we did over 186 videos in the last three and a half years. If you add up across all platforms, all videos, 100 million views just on digital in addition to the success of brain games. And I think what was important for me to keep doing those videos is because Brain Games was a coup, it was awesome, but I'm just the host, right? In my videos, I'm the director, I'm the narrator, I'm the supervising editor telling the editor what to do, I'm choosing the music. The cinema creator in me gets off, right? And so, finished five seasons of Brain Games, continued to build digital videos, and have found myself on the speaking circuit, which I know you're very familiar with, because I guess now we're living in an age where if you develop a following, it must mean that you have some kind of credibility or a point of view or something (laughs) to say that's worth listening to. So then people want you at events. Come tell us your story. Come talk to us about innovation. Come talk to us about storytelling. And because a lot of my videos were about tech and transhumanism, because I love geeking out on it, Silicon Valley embraced me, yeah. and then it's like, hey, Cisco, Microsoft, Oracle, Electronic Arts, come keynote at our events, Jason. Yeah. And I, you know, and they got a coup with me because they was like, oh, we have TV personality from Brain Games that everybody knew, which was great. Yeah. But then I happened to have content and a flair for talking about tech and transhumanism, which yeah. is Silicon Valley lingo. That's sweet so it was spot, like yeah. it was like it was like a sweet spot. So that gets us to now. Yep. Uh, Brain Games finished, and then I did this new show called Origins. Which is crazy high-level production. We saw the, the commercial, yeah, yes. Crazy high-level yeah, production. Yeah. I'm shocked Thanks, at how man. much they poured into that. And it's a huge nod to you right. to put you associated with something that's so highly produced. Yeah, I mean, what was nice about that is that you know, Nat Geo is trying to move towards more premium content yep. because there's so many signals competing for our attention. Yep. Everything is getting diluted. Yep. If you want to make noise in the content space, you got to innovate. And so what they did with Origins was they, they did a, a mashup format. So it's, it's definitely traditional storytelling, scripted cinematic storytelling is a key transformative moments in human history. The origin of language, the origin of transportation, the origin of yep. war, the origin of money. Um, but that those segments, those historical repro- reproductions or recreations would be stitched together yeah. with my hosted things, w- which we called symphonies in the show, but they basically look like the shots of Bob, but a little bit more edited. Yeah. So then I got to experience this interesting mashup of formats. So here was a TV show that was influenced by my web content. Yeah. So in a way, it was like too good to be true. So we just launched that actually recently yeah. and uh, hopefully it's done it's pretty well. It's beautiful. Thanks, you should be bro. super proud of it. It's gorgeous and if you haven't checked it out, um, I think the fact that it wrestles with big ideas and it does so in a very simple yeah. n- narrative, like a simple arc, right. Um, right. it's both, it, it feels um, cinematic, it feels, mm-hmm. uh, despite being on television, it mm-hmm. feels digitally native. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's inspired by that mashup culture that we all know yeah, and totally. love today. 
Um, so in that little that little rant there, you said like five or six things that mm -hmm. I love, mm -hmm. um, and I want to try and track back to them. Cool. One of the things is that you mentioned being a, a, a writer, a producer, a director, a host, mm -hmm. uh, the music supervisor, the all of these things, mm -hmm. and. To me, that's another thing. That as I'm, you know, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of the listeners today, that that's it. Both is, is a little bit daunting, but I'm hoping it can be more empowering. Like that, you we're, we're all hyphens today. This idea yeah. that you're going to go to work or you're going to grow up, go to school, get a good job, yeah. you know, work here for 40 years, yeah. get the gold watch. Yeah. That's just that just doesn't exist anymore. Right. And the fact that I mean, people ask me how to describe myself, and I'm like, uh. You know, Slashy. I, yeah. It's just, well, it used to be model slash actor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Zoolander, they talk yeah. about. No, but it is a yeah. slashy culture increasingly, yeah. Yeah. right? Like, but you you are living that. Is that something that you love, hate, fear? Is it an opportunity or is it a, is it a roadblock? Uh, I think the only part that I don't like is the idea of using that it, for purposes of self-aggrandizement. Yeah. Well, I'm a philosopher and a filmmaker and a host. I mean, you just think it's, it's, it sounds ridiculous. So yeah. I yeah. prefer saying, you know, look, I, I'm a storyteller yeah. and we live in a world of mixed media tools. Yeah. Um, I, I'm quite inspired by a lot of these single musicians now that using looping pedals oh, yeah. and technology, Zoe you know, Keating. yeah, I, oh yeah, you're incredible. There you go. Yeah. I saw this guy perform at TED, dude. He's a 22 year old kid, British guy. I don't remember his name, but like literally. So he goes and he plays a thing on the piano, and then it starts to loop. And then he goes and he plays something on the drum, and then it starts to loop. And then he goes and he plays something on the guitar, and it starts to loop. And then he starts adding some vocals, yeah. and now it's like a whole band all Sounds generated good. by him. And then there's an algorithm that generates visuals on the screen synchronize with the music. Yeah. So the guy's putting on a multimedia psychedelic performance. Like one guy. One yeah. guy. Yeah. So that's not to say that there isn't still a possibility of a band of several people working together, an sure. orchestra. Sure. Great. But for those of us that are tinkerers, yeah. you know, for like somebody in, in, like me and you probably, yeah, I love watching movies, but then I have a point of view and I want to say shit. Yeah. And my, yeah. my favorite part is sitting in the editing room and picking music because I like music. So it's like, yeah. It, we get to do that, and I think it's great. But I think at the end of the day, what are we doing? We're we're making stuff. Yep. We're telling stories, and that, I think Very, sums yeah, most up. simply that's a beautiful, I think, a yeah. beautiful bow to right. put on that. So, right. uh, to me, that's a uh, it's a view into lifelong learning. That yeah, you know, the fact that we all have access to stuff we used to not have access to. Mm -hmm. If our parents had one job, mm -hmm. we're going to have five, and mm -hmm. or if you're a part of the next generation. You know, five at the same time, which is what you just described. Sure. And to me, that's inspiring, and there's opportunity there. Um, and there's the fact that there's no one path. You know, if you used to want to be a director, right. here's what you did: you went, you you grew up, you made a bunch yeah. of films, and you got into USC film right. school, and then you did that for a bunch of years, and then you that's it. you know you worked your way up the ladder. And now you can come in. There's like 50 doors. There's the side door. There's you can parachute in from the roof. You can dig a tunnel. You can just 100%. end end up doing that yeah, thing. Yeah. So. Um, uh, so one of the things that you said, in addition to, as yeah. we go back to track that, yeah. that last um, uh, arc that you were on, we've got the, the hyphen part, but you also have the inspirational, the philosophical part of you. Yeah, it's a big part of it. Yeah, it's a big part of it. And so I, I was hoping that mm -hmm. we could track a little bit of neuroscience, a mm -hmm. little bit of your personal opinion yeah. about sort of the value and the, the, the science of creativity, that's a huge part of yeah. the show. It's it's the underpinning of Creative Live. Oh, cool! I, you know, creative creativity is in every person. Yeah. But give us a little 
give, give us some context about your view on how to cultivate it, where yeah. it comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe you can mix opinion well, and neuroscience. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm an existentialist, so I'm of the opinion that our, the fire in the belly, that existential anxiety is also what fuels our creativity. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, who I kind of adore, uh, she just published a blog uh, on the TED blog. And she was saying that creativity is like a border collie. And you know, it has all this energy, it wants to run around, and if you don't give it something to do, then it's gonna do something on its own, and it's not something you're gonna like. So <laughs> that same fire in the belly can turn in on itself if you don't give it an outlet. One of my favorite books um, by Ernest Becker, if you've never read it, I recommend it, The Denial of Death. 1974 Pulitzer Prize winning book about the human condition and it basically says that the collective anxiety, the, the human neurosis, the source of our despair comes from this unique awareness in the animal kingdom of death. Not imminent death, not immediate danger, but just the fact that one day this thing will happen. You know? So it's like with our minds we can ponder the infinite, yet simultaneously we're housed in heart-pumping, breath-gasping, decaying bodies. So we're gods and worms at the same time. And this is something, and the book breaks it down. It says if you look at human history, human culture, human culture is a construct to deal with the paralysis of this unique mortality awareness. So whether it's the first solution to the death problem, religion, oh, that solves it because yeah. you don't die, you pass on, and you continue to live in the kingdom of God, blah. Great, if you believe, great. The second solution to the death problem is the romantic solution. She's like the wind, she's my salvation, she's the sun. You know, the pop songs, the movies, you know, the girl. And, and by the way, I've flirted with that one, I like that one, but yeah. that's a lot of pressure to put on a human being. For sure. Make a human into a god, and no relationship can bear the burden of godhood. That's why yeah. they say, don't idealize a person, you're gonna crash in the end. I don't know how I feel about that, because I'm a romantic, but still. Venezuelan, you're Venezuelan roots. It's, so. built, it's built into me. <laughs> But, but the final one, which I think is really interesting, he calls the creative solution to the problem of death. And so that perhaps is the healthiest outlet, is to become a cosmic hero, to say I'm going to do something of significance in the world, I'm gonna make a dent, I'm gonna make a mark, I'm gonna carve my name on the tree. And whether that's a cathedral or a skyscraper or a jet engine that you design or creating creative live, I mean, it's ultimately what suffuses our lives with meaning is us deciding that we are the arbiters of meaning, we are the creators of our own meaning, we are the paintbrush, but also the canvas, the whole thing. Yeah. And when we do that, it seems to resolve the tension inherent in being a human being. And, and the, the, the last thought that I would leave there is the difference between the neurotic and the artist because they both are extremely sensitive, they both take in the world and are overwhelmed by the world, um, but the neurotic cannot respond, and so he chokes on his introversions, whereas the artist takes in the world, reworks it into his art, and then pushes it back out again in the form of the work. And so th this, to me, explains it all. Yep. Um, in terms of just, it just makes sense, yeah. but also I can, I can relate to that as somebody that struggles with the meaning of life. Yeah, all those things, the paralysis, the yeah, fear, yeah, fear. anxiety, yeah, totally. Yeah. Let's talk about those things for just mm -hmm. a second. I think mm -hmm. that's good. We um, we get together yesterday and just as yeah. a sort of precursor to the show. Yeah. And it, I feel like the the anxiety, well, let's mm -hmm. separate first of all, yeah. that art and anxiety are tied. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that there's plenty of things to suggest that you just, you know, walked us down a path, but I want to get tactical for a second because yeah. 
anxiety is a very real thing and it's mm -hmm. growing in our culture. It's not yeah. getting smaller and, right. and either growing or the documentation around it is growing, probably yeah. both. Yeah. Um, as information is moving faster, there are more things competing for our attention, which increases the sort anxiety. of yeah the anxiety and multitasking and, also. Yeah, multitasking. These things that we were told were you know need and, and we're going to advance our culture. I think there is an erosion of some very simple human states into anxiety. So mm -hmm. again, this is a little bit of a departure for, from the creative uh, line of thinking, but they're related. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what do you do? You know, we talked about both like running around with a lot yeah. of anxiety. Yeah. And what do you do? Like, let's get tactical for a second. Yeah. I always feel, I feel like the dose makes the poison, right? So a little bit of anxiety, I think is good. I mean, in a way, we are all the descendants of the most anxious humans, the yeah. ones that were sitting around without Getting paying attention to predators tigers. got eaten. Yeah. yeah. Right. So anxiety keeps us alive and a little of it acts a little of it actually can, yeah. can fuel us. We get out of bed in the morning. We don't want to get to the appointment late. Like yeah. get a move on, get things done. A little bit of hustle I think is good. I think it makes us more creative. You know, when I get on stage to give a talk, I wouldn't say I get nervous anymore, but I want to feel something. Yeah, if sure. I feel nothing, that's a problem. Yeah. And by the way, a little bit of anxiety, I think, boosts performance yeah. also. There's no question about it. Science is clear. Yeah. yeah. But I think that what happens is too much anxiety when it becomes overactive. And this can be messed up with, you know, if, if you don't get enough sleep, yeah. if you're overstimulated, if you have too many signals competing for our attention, you start to get a bandwidth anxiety. Yep. And if you're not getting enough time to rest, you know, like all these things make you less resourceful. And if your brain is less resourceful, then it's going to be more overwhelmed. And I think that in some ways, society is arranged uh, in ways that exacerbates anxiety and we don't have best practices to implement to yeah. deal with it. Yeah, we're not trained to, to deal with anxiety. We're, right. tra we're trained in so many things. We're trained in math and science right. and school right. and language. And, right. But fundamental ability to take care of yourself, not just the eating right. well, eating, right. sleeping, they were not really talked right. about, but specifically how to process anxiety. We don't have a culture that, that uh, pays attention to meditation, really. Right. There's all these right. things that I feel like are... There's a groundswell, and I think we might be understanding a little bit more than we have in the well, past. Well, now, now people are talking about anxiety. Yeah. I mean, sorry, about, about mindfulness and, yeah. and meditation for anxiety. Yeah. But imagine, you know, I think it was David Lynch that has talked about like all the experiments in schools when you teach kids how to meditate and the collective effect that it can have on their well-being. I mean, I think for sure we need these tools and best practices to yeah. be put into motion because I think that what happens is both exacerbated anxiety eventually rewires the way the brain processes fear. So yeah. a lot, when you're just really anxious all the time, eventually your brain is just wired for that down to be your yeah. baseline. Yeah. So then you have an overactive amygdala, the fear center of the brain, and then you're just on edge all the time. And then you're getting more cortisol in your system, which makes you even more on edge. And then you're not sleeping well because yeah. your brain is full of cortisol. It becomes a feedback loop negatively yeah. spiraling yeah. down. Yeah. And but what do you do to deal yeah. with that? Because you know, no, it's good. I, I want to. I, I think it's yeah. good to talk about the neuro yeah. neurochemistry. I think yeah. it's good to talk about the cultural. But yeah. let's get tactical. Like, like how solve Jason, the problem. How does Jason Silva deal yeah. with it? Yeah. So you're friends with a good friend of mine, Stephen Kotler, who you've had on the show. Yeah. And Stephen yeah. Kotler, for those that don't know him, and Jamie Wheel are the co-founders of the Flow Genome Project. And Super look, cool I, organization. I, I, yes, and I and I've come across ideas related to meditation, ideas related to yoga. What has served me and helped me the most is any activity that puts me into a flow state. More than a meditative state, more than a yoga state of relaxation, flow can be anything. I mean, meditation and yoga are two flow triggers, potentially. 
But a flow is a state of consciousness in which you feel your best and you perform your best. So kind of magically, you, you, you feel great and you're doing and performing in a great we way. We all know those feelings. Yeah, like, an elite yeah, athlete, yeah, yeah. a chess player, yeah. a surfer, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you know, like, I mean, you know that space. Yeah, you felt that in your body before. Yeah. Precisely. And the, the acronym that these guys used to describe what happens when you're in a flow is STIR. Selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and information richness. So I would say that my art, making videos, even right now having this conversation yep. with you, today I'm in the zone. So the ideas are full. So my sense of self disappears. So if I started out kind of like nervous or awkward, now that I'm in the zone, my sense of self vanishes. Yep. So I'm no longer self-conscious, right? Yep. So that goes away. The inner critic gets quiet. The sense of time disappears. I'm no longer worried about how long, how much time am I going to be able to say some interesting tidbits. Like all that goes away. A sense of time disappears. Um, there's effortlessness. Right? The yeah. ideas just flow to mind. It comes through you, but not from you. And though it is with you, it belongs not to you. Right? Like, Whoa. and then that's <laughs> paraphrasing Khalil Gibran. But then finally, and then finally, richness. I feel like I'm getting a download. I feel yeah. like my pattern recognition is increasing. My associational uh, thinking is increasing. And so all of these things are the hallmark of a flow state. Now, for me, it happens when I make my videos. The camera focuses me, it heightens me into the zone. Giving the talks puts me into a flow. But also, novel experiences, travel. When I'm riding bikes through Amsterdam, I get yeah. in a flow. Yeah. When I'm on a date with a beautiful girl, eventually, when I get over my nerves, <laughs> I get into a flow. That is the only solution that I have found that resolves the anxiety or absolves me from it. Right. Temporarily. Sure. It's an ongoing practice that you have to cultivate. What about the 3 a.m. anxiety? Because it's very difficult to put yourself in a flow state to get out of anxiety at 3 a.m. It is for me. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm projecting on you, but I'm going to assume because I don't know anybody who's like 3 a.m. You know what? I can Xanax. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. yeah. <laughs> but like, like yeah. yeah it that's is, the hard part. Yeah. That's the hard part. Like, that crocodile uh, brain that goes back to survival mode because that's our, our yeah. what we come from. Yeah. How do you manage that? J Jamie Wheel says that that's he calls it the cul-de-sacs and error messages. Like your brain is, it's been, for whatever reason, some thought triggers the hijacking and then you get into like OCD-esque, obsessive looping thinking that, yeah. that you have to break it like a hiccup. How do you yeah. fix a hiccup with a scare? Yeah. That usually is what it takes to fix it. Like try to get out of bed and do an activity because even last night I had it. Yeah. I knew I had to get up this morning. I was on West Coast times. So I couldn't fall asleep last night. So I'm kind of in bed and I'm like, oh, I wish I could fall asleep. And then I'm anticipating being tired the next day. When you're on a so, panel this morning on a show today. Right, yeah, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm in bed and I could feel my physiology was in a not restful, not resourceful state. Like I'm in bed, I'm not feeling relaxed, I'm feeling anxious. Yeah. And you can tell because then you're like, you find yourself doing those kinds of sighs, like yeah. those deep breaths, and it's like, oh shit, like this is turning into anxiety now. So, you know, I, so, I've learned to try to ignore it in yeah. those moments, be like, don't engage, just be like, yeah. acknowledge it, and then like, try to yeah. go to sleep. But in retrospect, you know, that's when you maybe get out of bed, take a shower, take a bath, open a book and read it. What yeah. you have to do is break the loop yeah. by getting distracted for, a, for a, a several minutes. All yeah. you really need is to be distracted for enough time that you forgot what you were thinking about and, yeah. and you teleport to 10 minutes later and you're like, oh, I don't know why I was so worried. I don't even remember anymore. And then it's like, it's past, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that's, that's my... Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I think the, in, to summarize, I would say that there are, there are a number of techniques that we can yeah. all have, whether it's meditation or yeah. getting out of the shower, all those things. And the 3 a.m., I call them gremlins. Those, those are not your friends. I think uh -huh. some people 
Um, right. There are a bunch of folks who've been on the show before, friends of mine, Tim Ferriss. We talk about like that. How do you break yeah. that loop? And then if you're a hard charging person yeah. and you've attributed that sort of neuroses in some way, shape, or form to success right. because to it's who you dry, are, it's right. drive, it's right. edge, totally. it's all these things. Totally. And then if you are able to master that, I've put years into doing it, talk Tim into meditating. And when you realize that you don't have to, that it isn't the thing that gave you your edge and it was really an anchor, that to me was a big breakthrough. If I, could, switch. If I could control that 3 a.m. voice and say, wait a minute, I recognize you. Yeah. I just don't need you right now. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> or you know, whatever the thing is. Yeah. So it's yeah. great to hear that you have some ways of dealing with it. And flow states, you know, for those who don't don't know about it uh, and you want to find out more, yeah. you mentioned Stephen Kotler yeah. and Jamie and yeah. um, there's uh, other shows that here in the show. You can find out about that stuff. So yeah. um, dealing with the anxiety, we, we got there from our, yeah. our sort of creative arc. So yeah. um, when we are uniquely creative relative to other species on the planet, you, you framed it as a way to find, to sort of um, identify, to ground us, to you know, create meaning. Sure. Talk to me about the creativity that exists in every person, and yet there are people so, who, who deny that, and there are, uh, there's a cultural framework that suppresses creativity yeah. Yeah. from a very early age. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I think that anybody, um, has the capacity to be creative. I just think that context matters. I think we are contextual beings. You become what you behold. You are the sum of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. Everything we design in the world designs us in turn. You know, Marshall McLuhan, the technology philosopher, used to say we build the tools, the tools build us. So I think for human beings, if they are in an environment that doesn't stimulate creativity, that doesn't awaken a hunger or a curiosity, you know, if, it, if you're not thrust into some rabbit hole, you might get comfortable with being in a space where you just don't feel connected to that part of yourself yeah. and eventually you just learn to suppress it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that I think we all have a creative capacity. And, you know, to talk about Elizabeth Gilbert again, her whole thing is start with curiosity, right? If you don't feel like you're creative, start with making a list of things you're curious about and chase that, you know? And Stephen Kotler has talked about like finding your passion and how yes. people think like, I can't find your passion. He has a very simple Venn diagram. He says, make a list of 10 or 15 things you're curious about. At the very least, like, okay, space-time, uh, quantum physics, uh, the metaphysics of orgasms and MDMA. You know? And then see where those things you're curious about, where they overlap. Like that, the Venn diagram. So there must be a place where they kind of overlap thematically. And where they overlap, he says that's the sweet spot because there's obviously neuroscience there. There's like brain activity because it's multiple things you're curious about overlapping. Like, shit, dopamine's yeah. now flowing. Oh, I'm in the zone. I'm engaged. Optimal arousal zone. Um, and then he says, chase that, and then that's probably where your passion lies, where multiple curiosities overlap. And I'm sure that that which awakens passion is gonna agitate that creative drive. Yep. And then he continues, he says, then find some need that can be served in the world yep. by this newly identified passion. So then it turns passion into purpose. So it's like a really simple little formula, but I think it's something that anybody at home can do. And yeah. It's quite applicable. I think that's that's the, the tactic that I love. And yeah. Mark Cuban talks about the same thing. Oh, if, you're, cool. if you're looking at your areas of interest, follow your effort. Like what are you, what are you internally motivated to apply effort towards yeah. as right. opposed to this, like the idea of a passion and like yeah. knowing what you love and yeah. that there's a lot of pressure there. Of course. And so if you look at a list of things and you're, you feel some sort of 
um, internal pull toward yeah. those things, you start to apply effort. And if you feel joy and then you follow that effort, you can sort of back into passion. That 100%. I think um, that's, that's great. Yeah, it's a nice little, it's a nice little exercise. So you also, um, you jumped ahead two or three spots in, <laughs> in my mental map of where this conversation's going, but I'm going to go there. Great. Uh, the use of psychedelics to, uh, yeah. to transcend you know, the day-to-day, -to, -day, to break into some of these flow yeah. states that we're talking about, to understand our position in the universe. You used the word context. There's been a ton of science Research, that's come, yeah. Yeah, it's come out recently. Um, MDMA, ecstasy, Molly, whatever you want, yeah. is now in stage three clinical yeah, trials right. to reduce as a very effective reduction in PTSD, that's and not right. just soldiers, but in, mm -hmm. you know, in, in all of us. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about you know, your view on it, the, the taboo, but also the opportunity. Yeah, well, I, I think it comes from an interest in peak experiences. Uh, as somebody who's not traditionally religious, you know, I grew up in a secular household. My mom's Jewish. My dad doesn't really practice anything. Um, but there was a celebration of art, and there was a celebration of the human spirit, and there was a celebration of aesthetic experience. So the healing capacity of art, the healing capacity of ideas. And so this generated an interest in the highest echelons of that, the north of happiness, you know, whether it's flow states or peak experience, transcendental moments yeah. when the traditional narrative goes, you connect with something larger than yourself. It's a very real experience. I don't For care sure. how you mediate it. For it sure, if you're in a crowd and people, you're in a march, you're in a concert, yeah, in a concert a sex, church, yeah, church sex, all, whatever, yeah. maybe music. Um, and I think that where mind-altering compounds come into play is that they are shortcuts to an altered state of perception. And sometimes that's the first thing that one needs is to be jolted out of your cognitive comfort zone. Yeah. The been there's and done that's of the adult mind. You know? yeah. uh, Michael Pollan has written about a sense of first sight unencumbered by knowingness, like seeing the world through the eyes of a child. Yeah. It's not what you know, it's not your jadedness, it's not you've seen it all before, yeah. it's like, it's that gawking astonishment, yeah. you know? And it has to do with actually hijacking attention. Like, yeah. Darwin had a great quote, and I've talked about this in my videos. He said, attention, if sudden and close, graduates into surprise. And then that graduates into astonishment. And then that graduates into stupefied amazement. But how rare is it for your attention to be fully hijacked? You know, maybe an amazing movie when you're in an IMAX theater, or oh my God, a Hubble Space Telescope, whatever it may be. But I think that where psychedelics come in is, you know, if you're suffering from anxiety and depression, your excessive rumination and self-consciousness is not even letting you experience anything yep. intensely. You're stuck in your own head. And psychedelics can break that by disrupting something called the default mode network, which is the autobiographical mind. The autobiographical mind is a way of keeping yourself separated from everything. If you disrupt that, all of a sudden you can be cracked open by the world. And, you know, whether it's cannabis, which can as David Lenson has written, italicize experience or aestheticize experience. Everybody knows about the pothead who smokes a joint before going to the Guggenheim Museum. I mean, it's like you want to alter perception just enough so that whatever you're exposed to, you're open to it's like hitting the sustain pedal on the piano. Yeah. You know, it's the same chord, it's just now there's a sustain pedal, time dilation, so it's, more, it's experienced more intensely. And that's just cannabis. But then things like MDMA, well, the neuroscience is astonishing. 
It quiets the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, while increasing activity in the frontal cortex, which is the rational part of the brain. So you can look at your own traumas, fears, and anxieties without actually generating anxiety within your brain. It also stimulates you to increase engagement while paradoxically relaxing you. So it puts you in the optimal arousal zone. Sasha Shulgin, who cultivated MDMA, said it's perhaps the most perfect drug in the world. But of course, in raves, it's adulterated with other chemicals, drug war, propaganda. So there's this other idea of its danger. And then the classic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD, well, these things induce potentially mystical experiences where you actually experience like the death of the ego and something akin to a religious revelation. Yeah, Yeah. oneness, paradoxicality, where multiple truths are held in mind at once, ineffability, you know, something so magnificent you can't put it into language, Um, a sense of the noetic, that what you're seeing is like ultimate truth, a sense of transcendence of time and space. I mean, this is where you get into the realm of the sacred. And, but of course, there's also psychological precautions because you know that ma- magnificent trip could yeah. go into a bad trip, yeah. and I don't even want to imagine a psychedelically addled panic attack. Yeah. So I'm not advocating like a full recreational thing. I'm saying like highly controlled environments, highly curated spaces, trained therapists, doses, yeah. doses you know, to guide us. Um, but I definitely, you know, I think we're seeing an acceptance of an exploration of consciousness we've never seen before. I mean, the, the, the well, increasingly... Even, even weed, yeah, the legalization, legalization of weed. Of marijuana, which is a very strong mind-altering substance, depending yeah. on the dose. Um, MDMA being in phase three with the work of Rick Doblin at MAPS, and uh, that's the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Um, and then, of course, the classic psychedelic psilocybin is being used to help people deal with end-of-life anxiety. Yeah. People who have cancer, have lost all hope, you know, they have a... a, a, a chemically induced mystical experience and it cures them of their anxiety completely. Yeah. Like that's a miracle. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the telescope of psychiatry right there. Um, but again, responsible, judicious, more trials, more funding. And I have a passion for this. You know, obviously I'm interested in mental health, but I'm also somebody who's quite familiar with anxiety. Yeah. So I, I think again, a little anxiety is good, but I, I've had a couple panic attacks in my life. I'm kind of a nervous guy by default and certain triggers can make me spiral. And you only have to have like three or four panic attacks in your life to spend years trying to worry about having another one, you know what I mean? And then I've read that depression is now the world's most widespread illness. So I think our own mind, 800,000 suicides a year, according to the United Nations. I heard that stat the other day. Dude, so, so, you know, stewardship of internal life is, is the ultimate engineering project. And I think that these, tools along with multiple other ones are the way forward. So I've done some videos in this space lately. It's my first move towards like actual advocacy. Um, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's man, I'm stoked. Big, yeah. yeah, congratulations Thank on you. leaning into that. I, I love the reconciliation of, uh, of culture, of uh, the law structure, and specifically mm-hmm. the United States I'm talking about. There are other cultures that are more open to it. Um, the science and the, the individual experience. When those things all start reconciling with one another, it's, I think it's an, it's an advancement of culture and advancement. Yeah, it's a game changer. Um, so you mentioned mental health. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about anxiety. Is there any other yeah. messages or thoughts that you have about mental health that you feel like you know, would be worth? Yeah, just, it's such a, uh, it's so predominant in culture and yet it's still yeah. not talked about yeah. enough. Yeah. So I'd like to give it a little bit of sure. airspace here. Is there? Yeah. Well, again, I have a big interest in transhumanism as well. So it's you not- use, use, use different words. 
for just a second to yeah. point at transhumanism. What is transhumanism? So transhumanism, transhumanism is basically a philosophy that believes that through the use of technological intervention and innovation, we can transend our limitations. We can transcend the boundaries of what it means to be human. So the Body, definition mind. of what we are can be broadened. Okay. Um, and I believe, by the way, that meditation is a transhumanist technology just as much as the iPhone is. Got it. Um, and so, so yeah, I think go into that, that for a second. Yeah, that, are so, you using that as a, as a, a tool toward um, mitigating mental illness? And, and broadening the definition of what humans are capable of. So again, interventions like psychedelic intervention, MDMA psychotherapy, psilocybin for end-of-life anxiety, cannabis sometimes for some people dealing with PTSD. Like, like technologies of inner space are just as important as technologies of the external environment. Um, and there's a host of treatments and I think we should embrace all of them because I think there's really a, a revolution in mental health happening. Um, but that is the idea of taking somebody who's, who's living a, a, with a pathological condition, a diagnosable clinical level of anxiety yeah. or neurosis and bringing them up to baseline. But what about the concept of making well people better? This is something that I'm also really interested in because not all of us are diagnosed with a clinical anxiety and depression. Yeah. Not all of us are medicated, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't all benefit, benefit yeah. from an MDMA session with a therapist. Because it is my belief that all of us, even the most well-adjusted, still have PTSD. Yeah. I think birth probably is traumatic. It's still <laughs> stored in there somewhere. I think heartbreak is traumatic. I think you know the death of a parent is traumatic, and we, we learn yeah, to cope with these things. All the, yeah. But yeah, so so even if we're quote unquote well adjusted, I still think all of us could use an intervention in there. And this is where I think that that mind altering substances become the blueprints of a true transhumanist technology that essentially allows us to tweak ourselves. You know, and Kotler has talked about advances in psychology, technology, neurobiology, and pharmacology. To again upgrade the game for ourselves. Nootropics are part yep. of this now, yep. make ourselves cognitive upgrades. There's a company called Neurohacker Collective that makes an amazing product called Qualia. There's a philosopher called David Pierce. He wrote a thing, a treatise on the internet called The Hedonistic Imperative, where he talks about paradise engineering and the moral responsibility that we have to tweak our very brains to eliminate human suffering as, as, wow. as like the default. Like he wants to basically transcend our Darwinian brains yeah. and make ourselves something more exquisite. And so I'm all about like probing yeah. and exploring that. Well, I think that in many ways that's part of what uh, Buddhism is, trying to end the suffering. Of course. And if you can get there, you know, drugs are one way, um, practice is another way. Sure. And suffering is optional. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I think it's, well, what is it? It's not, we will experience it, but it's sort of at what level, what depth. Sure, um, sure. When you, so the, You've just dropped a bunch of good names, and, <laughs> and you've mentioned a couple of great books. So yeah. let's try and like just do a, a brief little touch sure. base, a recap yeah, definitely, on definitely. some of the stuff that you've you like some some books, some films, some, definitely some names. Um, okay, so books. Uh, if you're interested in technology and its relation to the human condition, Eric Davis, Eric with a K, uh, wrote a book called Technosis: Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information. This is a book about how underneath the supposedly uh, scientific, rational technosphere, the human existential anxieties and yearnings and wishes are underneath. We, we want technology to save us. We want technology to fix everything. You know, like there's the, the spirit and the technosphere are intimately related and he talks about that and he's a beautiful writer. So Eric Davis's Technosis. Um, Ray Kurzweil's Singularity is Near is just kind of a Silicon Valley Bible. 
humans transcending biology. Um, and he's my, been very, very accurate in his predictions. Very much so. I mean, yeah. he's you know what I think about Ray. I've talked to Ray about creativity. Oh, cool. It's really, really, it's it's mind blowing stuff. He's I so so smart. The short version on that. Yeah. Why don't you just explain the singularity? Yeah. Basically, he the singularity is a metaphor borrowed from physics to describe what happens when you go through a black hole. The laws <laughs> of physics no longer apply, and so they've taken that metaphor and used it to describe the rise of information technology in our lives. So artificial intelligence, biotech, and reprogrammable biology, and then nanotechnology, which is like programmable matter at the level yeah. of the atoms. Yeah, and atoms can go in your body, fix your, you know, send an atom in your bloodstream, exactly. it goes around, eats the cancer, and exactly. these things are not far away. Well, they're actually. all advancing exponentially, these, yeah. vari these three fields, and they're kind of overlapping, and so the idea is that in the next 25 years, we can't really conceive of what's to come. It's like trying to explain to a chimp the nuances of Shakespeare. Like a chimp is bright, but when you start talking about poetry to it, it's just gonna look at you like you're crazy. And we're kind of in that position now because we don't have the wetware to conceive of what's to come when we're augmented maybe, billionfold by AI, for example. Yeah, maybe one simple example is the uh, the human genome product. Yes. Where uh, Kurzweil was saying we're gonna map this, and right. then they started on this endeavor to map our yeah. DNA, and then they're you know, they said we're going to do it in the next seven years, and Correct. after the first year, they're less than one percent of the way through. Correct. Second year, they're at one percent of the way through. Right. All the critics say you guys are never going to get there. Right. Third year, and what happens is there's an accelerating rate of return right. as you go up the curve, yeah. and then you know, six years in, they're halfway there, and yeah. sure as shit, they figure it out right. by year seven. So yeah. there's this curve that you can't actually know what's going to happen until yeah. it happens. It's insane. But the curve, it turns out, is mappable, right? right? You can look backwards and say, Correct. there's so many sorts of technologies that have been along this curve, yeah. and we need to start thinking about our application of that curve to the future. So what's it going to be like in 20 years? It's going to be something we can't even envision. Well, yeah, I mean, Kurzweil will say something like, if you take 30 steps like linearly, mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, five, you get to 30. Yep. But if you take the same 30 steps exponentially, it's like 2, 4, 16, by step 30, you're like up to a billion. Yeah. So in the same amount of steps, that's the difference between exponential growth and linear growth. Yeah. Either 30 steps gets you to 30 or 30 steps gets you to a billion. When you start thinking like that, then you come to understand how a supercomputer that was half a building in size and 60 million bucks 40 years ago shrank down to a device in your pocket. A million times cheaper, a million times smaller, a thousand times more powerful. That's exponential growth. Yeah, crazy. So and, and apply all, that to everything. To everything. Yes. And to me, that's a beautiful yeah. uh, metaphor. So, yeah. the you get Kurzweil singularity. That's yeah. the second book. Another one. And then, yeah, I always tell people the denial of death by Ernest Becker if they yeah. kind of want to really understand the human condition in all its naked glory. Um, those three books are powerful. Yeah. Oh, there's a book I read recently called Therapy with Substance. It's kind of a play on words there. It's about <laughs> psychedelic therapy, so with substance, therapy with substance. Um, really good book about a lot of the science of uh, psycholytic therapy, as they call it. Psycholytic? Yeah. Wow, I've learned some big words in, yeah, this, yeah, in yeah, this session yeah. here. Um, yeah. What's next? What are you thinking about? What's next? So having finished Origins and uh, having a little bit of a break in speaking for a few weeks uh, this summer. Yeah, break. A few weeks. Yeah. We're talking about the last 15 years. We're going to yeah. break up a couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm excited for the unknown unknown. And it's because I could think about it. Like a, it, it the things that I can think about, they're pretty easy. Like, oh, I want to make more videos on these topics and I want to raise the production value on these videos. Or maybe like I want to align with a brand to do some cool branded content storytelling that I can still own the creative on. Like, oh, there's all these like practical things. But um, the unknown unknown is I, I'm excited to be surprised by the eruption of some vision of what I want to do that I can't imagine yet.
Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's heavy. So in, what's the day-to-day looking like for you? Like, I think this is, I want to get tactical again okay. for a second. Sure. Um, I can see where you're going. You're in a good spot. And I think there's a lot of folks who would say, okay, I don't know what I want for myself, right. and, but I know it's out there. Yeah. And so are there some habits? I'm a big habit guy, and I yeah. learned this in, in a sense to deal with my own anxiety and um, fuel f- or desire for performance. Yeah. Looking back, I figured out that you know, it took me a couple of years that there's basically 10 habits, that if I do these 10 habits, there isn't a way such that I can't be my best self. Great. And it's meditation and eating and sleeping, and you know, there's a whole list of things. So it's a very tactical, yeah. I can't experience, I don't have an experience of doing these things and not being cool. stoked. Awesome. What are your uh, uh, daily uh, habits? What the, are you, the what? most important one is, is sleep. And uh, Tim Ferriss told me like 80% of anxiety management is sleep. You know? yeah. And ex- exercise, cardiovascular exercise, I think yeah. he also said. And so I think that like a healthy lifestyle that allows you to just like sweat like get your heart pumping like every day and you know even for 20 minutes is already going to dissipate anxiety inducing chemicals and flood you with pleasure chemicals yeah um so yeah exercise and sleep sleep is huge for me because if i don't get enough rest i actually feel like i can't function i I don't want to say i get depressed but i get like frustrated and angry and moody and pissed off all around so and is sleep that so? Is what is the huge. sleep uh, like for you? Do you have some sleep? Uh, tricks yeah, or? so I need a couple hours to unwind, um, especially because my world requires me to be on and engaged, and I kind of like being on yeah. and engaged. Yeah. But uh, that needs to end by a certain time of day, and I need like dinner. I need a couple hours to unwind. You know, dinner, shower, get into bed with a book or watch a movie. Yeah. Like no more phone. Like a few yeah. hours for the nervous system to fully calm down. So it's not yeah, like right. busy yeah. making moves anymore. Yeah. I lose myself in a story. Films relax me a lot. And it makes it a little hard when I have evening activities. Yeah. Because if I even if I go to dinner with you, it's yeah. going to be harder to fall asleep because we're going to yep. be talking the whole dinner. I'm going to be like buzzing, you know. Um, so I sometimes it requires, I think, a little bit of a circumscribed life, kind of like an athlete. Like yep. I really have to compartmentalize. Okay. I'm going to go on a date with a girl, but we're going to go on a date at seven, so we're done by nine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, I always have to incorporate my sleep into it. But that's um, not knowing thyself, right? That's a, uh, yeah, that's a very yeah, powerful yeah. tool. At the expense of coming across like a weirdo that overthinks these things. Because yeah. not everybody thinks about these things. There's a lot of people that just seemingly go through their lives without taking into account that how they feel is probably mediated by their sleep or by their... They just kind they're of in control. Passive acceptance. Right, yeah. Right. Um, I do like coffee in the mornings. I think it's a great performance-enhancing drug. I usually have a double or a triple espresso in the mornings, every morning, but not nothing past 12. Like, that's it. Um, I, I try to build novelty into my life. So I like to have days where I'm going to go somewhere I've never been, go to a park with a friend, go to see a film, go to a museum exhibit, just something where I can have the unknown unknown. I want to collide against an unexpected idea or an unexpected reference, something that will trigger a, a host of associations in my head, like a domino effect that then makes it turns into a book obsession or turns into something that I can Google for five hours. Yeah. You have to put yourself in situations outside of your typical routine for that to happen. Intentionally, yeah. Intentionally. Yep. Yep. So like intentional, intentionally putting myself in an unfamiliar space, like that is very important to me. Um, the other routine, I guess, is... Uh, I, I do a lot of Facebook Live as a kind of exercise in free association. 
um, you probably get a lot of that with this show where it's like, I mean, you probably think a little bit about what you're going to talk about, For but sure. you're like, you're in the zone. Yeah, you're trusting very focused. improvisation, yeah. though, right? Improvisation is a great tool to mitigate anxiety because anxiety comes from overthinking. And when you're in the zone and you just got to perform, you all of a sudden find yourself free of that inner critic. Yeah. Um, and if I don't have this context or a speech or a show, like if I'm just doing my own thing, Facebook Live has been fantastic because immediate button with your audience, immediate feedback from all the activities that they're sending you, and you're you don't really know where you're going, and it's it just kind of forces you to. It's like hosting light. a radio show, yeah. 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 And just doing that, you typically feel better afterwards because it's a creative act that doesn't require a lot of planning. But it, I was just creative for 15 minutes. You know, that's another one of my of my typical routines. Um, yeah, I keep I keep a, a notepad, a digital notepad on my phone. Uh, that was inspired by, did you ever read Stephen Johnson's book, Where Good Ideas Come From? No. Fantastic book uh, about innovation. And he talks about how British gentlemen of learning back in the day used to keep what's called a commonplace book. So a commonplace book was like a journal where they had quotes and they transcribed passages from books and they wrote down little ideas and musings and hunches. And then it becomes like a paper trail of where your mind's been. And each of those things spirals into a million associations. And so Is that I, a daily habit for you? Um, to review and go through it, yeah. yeah. To go through different texts and, and subjects. I have like several notes to myself and I'll, I'll go through them and I'll add stuff and I'll have lists. And then Particular I, software you use to do that? Or just do yeah, the, the notes? I, iOS notes. Yeah, the notes <laughs> yeah. app, okay. Yeah, but people use like... Evernote. Yeah, yeah, Evernote, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I would say that those are, those are the ones I can come up with right off the bat. No, that's beautiful. I, think I need that, meditation. I don't it's, have a meditation practice, like a traditional one. Yeah, well, we've talked about Tim a lot. And, and of the, his last book, Tools for Titans, um, of the 200 interviews, it was the most common thread yeah. of all the guests yeah. is that there was some sort of mindfulness or awareness practice. Yeah. And it was a game changer for me. As I said earlier, I, I used that as a, um, for a long time, like if, I, if I'm so chilled out, it's like my aggro, like got a you know, perfectionist, hard-driving self is what created all you know, any of the success that I had. Yeah. And so I was reluctant to approach yeah. it. I yeah. tried several different types, feel like, oh, sorry, it's not just me. Yeah. I had had some experience with meditation and visualization in particular around sports enhancing performance. Okay. It was on the Olympic development soccer team and we had some coaching around that. That was, that was my first, like, wait a minute. Mm. There's some, it was, I had some very powerful experiences doing that. And that clued me on to some work on the mental side would be, would be a, a huge advantage. For me, I realized once I found TM, I'm not, I don't want to be prescriptive about meditation, but once I found TM, it was so easy that mm. a fool could do it because mm. it's just saying a word over and over. It's, you mentioned David Lynch earlier in this mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge proponent of it. And I realized that that anxiety or that edge that I thought was the driver was actually an anchor. Mm. And when I was able to let go of that, transcended to me so this is well that, that's so wonderful to hear you say that it make, yeah. makes me want to learn that I uh when you said creative visualization yeah I think that that's something that I think I do but when I do it I don't think of it as a meditation but maybe and it is because my yeah. mom she's a teacher she always used to do creative visualization in the classroom with her students and a lot of times like I don't script my speeches but you know I get up on stage and talk for 30 40 minutes <laughs> usually what I'll do is I'll go over the first five to 10 minutes of things I want to talk about in yep. my head, but not like reciting a memorized thing, right. but just going, I just, I see myself on stage going through the story. Yep. And I usually will do it like once and 
doing that, then when, when I get to the stage, it's almost like I have a teleprompter in my mind yeah. in a weird way. So maybe that's a form of Yeah, it. I'm sure it is. It's, it's To me, the, the more senses also that I was able to incorporate. So I would visualize, I'll just use the soccer example. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd see the same thing, like see yourself on the field performing at a really high level. Right. I started incorporating the smell of the grass, the feel of bumping into other people, oh, wow. the sweat running down your brow, like wow. these little details. Wow. And it was next level. And so I started using the power of the mind to unlock these other aspects of performance, whether in that case it was physical, yeah. but here in mental or creative sure. um, or, you know, even in entrepreneurial, like I can tell you what I think the outcome is around creative lives X and Y, these different initiatives yeah. we have on because I've spent a lot of time thinking about them in my own head in blissful, positive ways. So, wow. But this, that's different than TM, that's visualization. Yeah. I use TM to be that quiet sort of um, centering practice, so. Maybe that's the one I need to unwind with. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very, I do it in the morning and the evening. I don't want to be prescriptive. I just recommend some sort of practice. For me, this was drop dead simple. Everything else had some, like level of um, complication that I mm -hmm. became ultimately uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. This is, it's crazy simple, so. How many minutes? Um, they, they ask or they recommend to do 20, morning oof. and evening. But yeah, you say oof, exactly, but I won't leave the house. It's like brushing my teeth now. It's like, I will call ahead, you know, sorry, I'm gonna be 15 minutes late and I'll go give, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, so I think, the shortcut is 10 minutes and but even... But you have to be, you have to do only, like it's not like when you wake up in the morning before getting out of bed, you just stay with your eyes closed for no. 20 minutes. Like I like I like to get up and then, you know, get some water and then meditate. I do like to do it in the morning before things, you know, before there's any inbound stimulus. Yeah. yeah. Um, the afternoon wow. one is also really hard. I, I would say I probably bat 600. So six out of 10 days, I'm able to get the, the afternoon one in and uh -huh. it's rarely 20 minutes, so, but... It's sort of like do what you can with what you have. So, um, like today, I was thinking like, well, when I'm going to get my meditation, oh great, I'll get it on the flight from New York to Seattle. Okay. It's easy to get, you know, 20 minutes on a yeah. flight that's five hours long. So, um, give it a shot. I will. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, it's powerful medicine. Yeah. Um, we we covered a really I know. broad range. I love that. To me, that's that is part of what makes a great successful show. It's really important to me that that we leave every show. I, this is something I try and cultivate sometimes explicitly, like mm -hmm. I'm about to do with you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes more implicitly, but something that you haven't shared out there mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. that is unique to our experience here on this show. Something that um, you have people that would be surprised to know about you. Mm. Can you think for just a second on that? Because like, I know you're a very public person, but like maybe people didn't know that, wow, you're just wildly successful television host, but you, know, you're, you work really hard at dealing with your anxiety. That's, I feel like that qualifies, but is there anything else that's you know, both wildly, you know, wildly scary and yeah. vulnerable or totally you know, cool and crazy that yeah, they didn't know that you, were a, you got a gold medal in jiu-jitsu or something? <laughs> like, anything like that that you can um, share with really? I mean, I feel like I, I'm really open in a lot of my videos <laughs> yeah. and it's like but um I think that most people probably don't know that uh I'm very introverted um I get a lot of attention fatigue from being in social situations which means it's a finite amount of time that I can do it before I feel really really drained yeah. and when I'm drained and I'm still forced to be in those situations I start getting really anxious because I don't always know how to get out of those situations yeah. 
So having to learn to say no, I'm extremely empathetic. So I can feel the pull of people. I can feel the longing of somebody in the discussion when somebody wants your attention. And it causes me sometimes stress and anxiety. So, so, so that's a thing. Um, I'm also shy. My disposition is actually timid. And I think that a lot of artists are. Yeah. And we, everything I've done has been a subverting an obstacle from overcoming shyness to be able to be social to overcoming, you know, getting on stage in front of thousands of people when I'm, my default is self-conscious. My yeah. default is I think too much sometimes about the wrong things. Um, and I have been a worrier my whole life, which is a problem. I'm kind of a hypochondriac, you know, like I'm like, I don't want to like get an injury, you know, <laughs> like my brother skydives all the time and I worry about the 1% chance that the parachute doesn't open instead of assuming, oh my God, it's so safe. I'm like, yeah, but what if it's the like one... air flight is like, yeah, I know people I, that are flat fear flying. So. I don't like turbulence. Yeah. I worry about the maintenance worker's <laughs> attitude that morning when he was fixing the thing. I worry <laughs> if the pilot drank the night before. Anytime I'm not in control and I have to depend on others, it, I need to be rested so that I can have, harness the resources to calm myself down. That, thank you for sharing, man. Yeah, That's you're welcome. Super impressive. And you took us on a tour of the body, I know, it's of crazy. the mind, of uh, psychology, neurology. So um, much. And thank you for leaving so many. The, the papal trail is long. We've got a lot of work to do. A lot of cool Congress. references. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me, dude. What a pleasure. Super good. Thank Arr. you. Thank All right, you. that's it. I'll probably see you again next week. In the meantime, oh, how do people track you down? Oh, at, yeah. At Jason Silva on pretty much yeah. a lot of stuff. At Jason Silva on Twitter, and then my public Facebook page is probably the rest. If you just search Jason Silva, it's the one with the little check mark, hit follow or like or whatever. That's where I'm getting the most community building yeah. right now. The videos, the engagement, the Facebook Live. Instagram, I'm at Jason L. Silva. Um, and then the YouTube channel, Shots of Awe. But definitely Facebook. I'd love to see you guys. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.